This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew 28, we are looking at verses 16 through 20. And uh, with this passage today, our study in Matthew's Gospel draws to an end. No cheers, please. I personally am going to miss it. I've enjoyed being in Matthew's Gospel. It almost preaches itself which has been very nice, uh, but I hope it's been a beneficial study. We've actually been in it for two years now since we started at Matthew 1, 1. Before that, not long before that, we had spent a number of months studying the Sermon on the Mount. So if you throw that in, it's been about two and a half years. Uh, but uh, there's so much variety in Matthew that uh, it really never seems to uh, be, to seem like it's that long. It's, it's sufficiently varied that it always seems to be something new. Well, today we are looking at that passage commonly known as the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Uh, Hear the word of God. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Lambert the lion had a problem. Lambert didn't know who he was. Lambert the lion was the subject of a 1951 Walt Disney short film, about eight minutes. Lambert was delivered by the stork, or should we say misdelivered, because Lambert was delivered to a flock of sheep. Lambert, the lion cub, was raised among lambs, and therefore Lambert had a bit of an identity crisis. He couldn't figure out who he was supposed to be, and therefore he really couldn't determine what he was supposed to do. But one day, a pack of hungry wolves attacked the flock, and instinctively, Lambert went on the attack As those whom he loved were threatened, he fought back and defeated that that, uh, pack of wolves and saved the flock. And almost as an expression of his newfound identity, he let out a huge roar. Not only had Lambert found his identity, Lambert had found his voice. Well, as we come to this passage In some ways, these disciples at this point are a little bit like Lambert the sheepish lion. They're confused. 
They have no real sense of identity. Everything they thought was happening had seemingly come to a halt, in fact, had collapsed in utter failure, and they were hiding like sheep behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And that's when Jesus comes to them and meets with them. And as Matthew describes that meeting, he does so in in the briefest of terms. Other gospel writers uh, spend more time describing those events that took place after Jesus' resurrection, the interactions he had with his disciples before he left them and ascended back to his father. But Matthew really pairs all of that out and gets down to just the essential here of Jesus' parting instructions to his disciples. We begin in verse 16, where the disciples, uh, doing as they were told by the women, remember it was the women who had gone to Jesus' tomb, and the angel, first of all, said to them, well, Christ is risen, he's not here, come check out the empty tomb. But he also gives them the instructions to go tell Jesus' disciples to go to Galilee, and there Jesus would meet them. And of course, then they encounter Jesus himself, and uh, Jesus repeats those instructions. Go to my disciples. No, he didn't call them disciples. He called them his brothers. The angel called them his disciples. Jesus says, go to my brothers. Even after all that they had done in abandoning him. Go to my brothers. Tell them to go to Galilee. And I will meet them there. Well, that's exactly what happens. Uh, in verse 16, now the eleven disciples, of course, absent Judas, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And their reaction there is similar, at least for some of them, to the women. Remember, when the women saw Jesus back in verse, 11, in verse 9, they took hold of Jesus' feet and they worship him, which is appropriate. And Jesus doesn't try to stop that. That's appropriate because Jesus is God. He is the resurrected Son. And it was appropriate. Well, the disciples saw Jesus. They, too, worship him. Matthew notes, some doubted. Now, immediately Thomas would come to mind. And Matthew may have had Thomas among that group, but he doesn't say one doubted. He said some, whether there were others of the twelve who had their doubts, or actually the word means hesitation, has the idea of hesitating, perhaps because of doubt. Uh, Maybe some hesitated to worship because of a fear of impropriety. We don't know. Matthew just doesn't give us any details other than there were some who doubted, some who were hesitant about what? To accept that this was really Jesus, to accept that it was appropriate to worship him, to accept that he had risen from the dead. It doesn't say, but it's helpful to us to hear that. Why? Because once again, despite the story that was being spread by the Jews, the one they had taken so much trouble to keep the disciples from spreading, that the disciples stole his body and now were spreading a resurrection story, The fact that some were hesitant about this, about Jesus, about how to respond to what had happened, indicates they were not expecting this. And they certainly weren't trying to pull over a hoax. They were caught off guard. They were uh, as surprised as anyone at what had happened. Even though Jesus had told them, they had been so slow to understand what he was talking about because of concern over what he said about his death that... uh, This really caught them off guard, and some had to struggle to come to the realization that this is, in fact, what happened. Jesus, who was crucified, is now raised from the dead. Some doubted. And then Matthew really just gets to his point here, uh, what he wants to end his gospel with here, verse 18. 
Uh, he comes to them, and Jesus speaks to them these words, giving them what we know as the Great Commission. Now, a very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, but one that the Lord has used not only in the lives of the disciples, but in the lives of the church ever since, to give us our identity, to help us see who we are, and therefore what we are to be about. Now, let's look at these words. First of all, Jesus begins with a declaration in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, the word all plays an important part in this verse. Just a few verses, just a few words, and yet the word all occurs four times. All authority, all nations, all I have commanded you, and I'm with you all the days. Or as the ESV and other translations frequently render it, uh, always. But the word all occurs again there. So Jesus comes with this declaration, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now what's Jesus saying? He certainly seemed to have authority prior to this point. And remember, people would be amazed at his teaching. Well, he, he teaches as one having authority, not as the scribes who would just quote one another, but uh, someone who came and spoke with the words of the authority of God himself. Well, of course, Jesus had authority prior to this point. He was, after all, the second person of the Trinity. He was God in the flesh. And so this change has not so much to do with Jesus being, as though somehow he became more authoritative in his being. That was always there. But more in terms of what has taken place now with his accomplishment of the task the Father had given him. So not so much an increase in authority in terms of his being, but in terms of having completed the task the Father has given him to do. Now, a couple of scripture passages help us to understand that. One from the Old Testament looking forward to this, and another from the New Testament looking back at this. The one in the Old Testament is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Listen to this. Daniel's vision, of course, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, to God himself, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, in that vision, in the words that were there in Daniel's vision, you hear a couple of things, both an echo of those promises made to Abraham that we read earlier of this everlasting covenant that kings would come from him. So that's being fulfilled in this one like a son of man. You hear the echo of those promises. But then as we come to the Great Commission, you certainly hear in the Great Commission that Jesus gives an echo of the language of Daniel. So there's a sense in which what Daniel has been describing is fulfilled now with Jesus' death and now his resurrection, his completion of the work of redemption that the Father had given him, that he had accepted, you know, to be incarnate, humble himself, to come and live here in this world and go through with the cross, to be the sin bearer, to be the substitute. He did it. And now he's been raised up in victory, and now Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. There's a second passage that we want to look at that occurs afterward, and that one is Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Now, you may know that Paul, of course, wrote Philippians. There's some question of whether Paul was quoting maybe from a very early Christian hymn 
here. Whether he was composing these words himself originally or quoting or drawing from an early Christian hymn or maybe conf- uh, creed about the ministry of Christ, we don't really know for sure, but Paul certainly records it there in Philippians 2, and this is what he says, that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, of course, we've just been studying that in Matthew. Therefore, because he did that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul is reflecting back on what Jesus did and echoes himself some of this same language that Jesus uses here, and certainly the events of his suffering and death and then his resurrection. So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, given by whom? Given by his Father. It, that, that is an expression of his Father's exalted, exalting him, making him Lord, placing everything under his feet. And Paul would later say that, uh, when, when he says everything's been placed under his feet, that doesn't include, of course, God the Father. Uh, God is the, the Father is the one who's conveyed this authority on him. But by way of human analogy, think of a king who says to his son, the prince, Well, my son, I am still the king, but I'm placing you over the whole realm. You're in charge now. You are running it. You're lord over it, and, and you reign. Well, that's effectively what the Father did with Christ, because he went through with the humiliation, the suffering and death of the cross. The Father has raised him up, and the Father has placed everything under his rule and authority. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. All authority in heaven and on earth in this entire universe is now placed under my hands. It's as if he is now the, the mediatorial king. The reign of God, the rule of God now comes through his Son, Christ has been exalted to that place of rule and authority over everything. Why is that important? Well, it's important, obviously, to know that this universe is under the reign of Christ. But it's also important because of what Jesus is about to say. And we see that in verse 19 and into 20, there's this command where Jesus says, Go, therefore. Jesus doesn't just say, go and make disciples. He says, go, therefore. What's the therefore pointing to? Well, back to verse 18, where he says, all authority has been given given in heaven and earth to me. Go, therefore. You see, that's the basis of the Great Commission, is this declaration of Jesus, his authority. So if someone says, well, who gives you the right to shove your religion down my throat? Well, no one gives you the right to shove your religion down their throat. That's a stereotypical phrase that they use. But who gives you the right to share your faith or declare the truth of the gospel to another? Christ Jesus himself, because you operate under the authority uh, of Christ, who is himself over heaven and on earth. That is our authority for missions. That's our authority to go into lands that haven't heard the gospel and declare to them the risen Christ as king and their need to bow in faith and submit to him. The authority is that of Christ himself. That's what gives us the, the right, the authority, not to abuse people or to be insensitive or shove our religion down their throats, but to declare to them the fact that Christ is risen. He is king, and every knee needs to bow to him. 
It was his authority that is our authority. And Jesus makes that plain when he says, go, therefore. Now, we move from that declaration now to the command in verses 19 and 20, what we tend to think of as the commission itself. And you may know this, that the only absolute verb, the only imperative verb, really is make disciples. Going, baptizing, teaching are all participles that sort of key off of that. And you don't want to make too much of that. I mean, it is true, really, that making disciples is at the heart of the Great Commission, and those other things are ways that we do that. But really, they all have an imperative force to them. They're all part of the command. So let's look at them in order. First of all, he says, go. The Great Commission is not a passive thing. It is a proactive thing. The church's posture is not to sit back and wait for, for them to come to us. He doesn't say wait for people to come, wait for the world to come. He says, you go. It is a proactive thing. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it's helpful here to remember a couple things. This involves uh, a church-wide task, and it also involves a church-wide mindset. First of all, the task. The task is given to the church. Jesus doesn't say, well, Peter, you go. Uh, Andrew, you go. He says, go to the disciples, representing the church, the 11, maybe other disciples who were present, but the 11 who were there, uh, the command is to them as the, the, the human pillars of the church, representing the church. The commission is given to the church, which means what? Well, it means that every one of us has a part to play in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. What does that look like? Well, most obviously, uh, the Lord calls some people to actually be the feet that go. Uh, that actually raise support, that go to another country, to another culture, learn a different language, learn that culture, uh, and actually begin to plant churches and spread the gospel in that culture. You think, well, whew, I've never been to seminary, I'm off the hook, right? I'm not, a, I'm not a teaching elder, I'm not a minister. We prayed earlier for Judd and Jan. It might be worth knowing that Judd is not a teaching elder. Judd is not a minister in the PCA. He's a ruling elder. He is not a, uh, he's not a seminary trained minister, but a ruling elder. And we have other missionaries who are not even ruling elders, uh, and yet use their gifts and talents on the mission field. So, uh, God calls all kinds of people, all kind of background, all kind of training to serve in this kind of uh, on-your-feet-going ministry in other places. But I would suggest to you the only reason to go like that is if God has called you to do that. And there is an inescapable compulsion to do that. I don't think guilt is sufficient reason to go to the mission field. A clear calling from God is absolutely necessary, certainly to get you there, but even more so to keep you there. So God does call some to do that. Uh, Paul was one of those. We read earlier uh, of, his, uh, of his mission in, in Corinth. But all of us have a, t- have a role. Some it's giving. You know, people are raising support. There has to be someone who is supporting the missionaries to send them there and keep them there on the field. That's a part of it. Uh, the fulfillment of the Great Commission is not something that is necessarily cross-cultural. It can be cross-generational. Some of you were present uh, when Sue Jakes spoke at the teacher training event after the services last Sunday, and uh, she made the point, a very good one, that in teaching our children, we are fulfilling the Great Commission. That is a part of it. 
uh, and certainly in personal witness, in declaring the gospel, talking about Christ with other people. That, too, is a form of fulfilling the Great Commission. Praying. Uh, we pray for our missionaries, as, as Mike did just a little while ago. We go through that list and pray for them in order. Why? Well, we support them financially, but it, it's useless to support people financially, to put them in a place and keep them in a place, and yet not pray for them that God would make their work successful, that he would give them the fruit of their labor. Praying is a huge part of fulfilling the Great Commission. And one done right is a lot of work, by the way. And praying for people to go. Jesus said, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Be willing to be an answer to that prayer, should the Lord call you to do that. Praying for those who are there, for their, for their families, their marriages, their protection, team unity, uh, as well as the effectiveness of the churches they plant and the, the gospel they share. So go is the posture of the church. It is a task given to the church, which every one of you has a part and can have a part in helping to fulfill, whether it's yourself going, praying, giving, uh, involvement in the Great Commission in your neighborhood or here, wherever it is. It's a proactive stance with a proactive task. But as I said, it's also a mindset. Jack Miller, uh, who taught at Westminster Seminary and was a church planter in the Philadelphia area, uh, wrote a book uh, with a tremendous title that expresses a, a very significant uh, truth. The name of the book, the title, is Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. And the problem is that churches, all churches, any church, has a tendency over time to become ingrown, to, be, to become inward-focused, uh, looking inward at its own needs or its own joys, whatever it might be, and we lose an outward focus, an outward look. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't believe missions is the primary task of the church. Worship is the primary task of the church. Like John Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. The task of missions is to make new worshipers of God. So missions is, an end to, uh, is a means to an end. The end is worship. The means of getting more people to worship God is missions. In heaven, we will not be doing missions, but we will continue to be worshipers. Uh, and so we need to recognize that. Nevertheless, an important task, if not the primary task of the church, is that of missions. And it involves not just a task, but a mindset, both as a church and as individuals. We tend to become as individuals, ingrown, concerned about our needs, concerned about our uh, tasks we face this week, concerned about our children, concerned about our situation. And so over time, churches, people become ingrown. And we have to go back and remember to develop that outward look. You know, some churches think, well, we're a very friendly church because we all talk to one another when we come to church. But the newcomer who's sitting there is feeling very alone because no one's talking to them. Not, their perception is not that you are a friendly church. Your perception may be because you're talking to one another. That's, that's becoming ingrown. Do you reach out to the newcomer, whether it's in, your, in this room, whether it's in your neighborhood, uh, wherever it might be, to d develop and maintain an outward focus, the needs of others, spiritual and material around us, rather than yielding to that natural tendency that we have as people in churches to look inward, to grow inward over time. As I say, every church has to fight that. Every person has to fight that. 
And so go means a proactive stance with regard to a task, but also behind the task, a proactive mindset that's outward focused. Yes, we tend to our own needs, of course. And yes, churches have certainly uh, many internal things that they need to give time and attention and, and uh, energy and funds to, but we dare not yield to that ingrown tendency and lose our outward focus. So go. Second thing Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. Now, this really is at the heart of the Great Commission. Notice we're not just trying to uh, round up decisions. We're making disciples. Now, a disciple is, is a follower. Uh, in short, it's someone who follows, someone who obeys. We use that term uh, outside the Christian context of someone who follows the teaching or the lead of another, a disciple, a follower. Uh, discipleship involves uh, submission. It involves uh, learning. It involves growing. And that's what Jesus is looking for here. Sometimes the church has all too often equated someone voicing a decision for Jesus with, great, with fulfilling the Great Commission, but that's not so. What happens to that person? Do they become a, a growing, learning, maturing, uh, and eventually reproducing Christian? You see, that's a disciple. Uh, and Jesus is giving this task to those whom he himself has made disciples. These men that he called from their various callings, and they spent time with him, learned from him, followed him, and now he, in turn, is giving them the task of doing for others what he has been doing for them. And suddenly, everything that had been taking place with Jesus becomes all the more important, and for them, the model of what they would then do for other people. So making disciples is an important part of this. Now, baptizing and instructing are sort of subsets of that. It's almost as if Jesus is elaborating. Baptizing. What is, why, why baptizing? Well, for a couple of reasons. One thing, baptism is a mark. It, we, we, we refer to the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as signs and seals of God's covenant of grace. Baptism is a sign. It is a mark of, uh, of, of God's promise. It is a mark that this person belongs to Christ. You see, in, in some countries where Christians are persecuted, Defining line isn't a profession of faith. It's when they're baptized. You see, that's when they've crossed the line, and that's when they're liable to persecution. Baptism is important because it indicates incorporation into the church. Jesus isn't just saying, well, make random Christians here and there just to gather and go wherever they want to and live on their own. He's saying, make disciples and incorporate them into my body, into the church. And first of all, baptism is a sign that they belong to the church. They are in the church. But it's also a seal. It marks them as belonging to God. It, it impresses upon them obligations. It, it is, a, is a sign of submission. It's, a, it's an outward badge of discipleship, an obligation for someone who's come to Christ, yes, but even for a covenant child. You recognize that just as in the Old Covenant, when we baptize, when we apply the covenant sign to our infant children, we are placing on them an obligation. Just as Isaac uh, uh, bore the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament with the obligations to follow in the faith of his father Abraham that placed upon him, when we apply that covenant sign to our children, to our infants or young children, we're calling on them and placing on them the obligation as well as training them up to 
follow in the faith of their fathers, to call on the name of the Lord, and to do otherwise is to become a covenant breaker. Baptism is a sign of ownership. It's a sign of obligation and submission, as well as a mark of being part of the church, the body of Christ in the world. So we're not just creating uh, disparate, random Christians. We're building the church. Baptism means they're incorporated into the visible body of Christ here on earth. And then Jesus also says, instructing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that Trinitarian formula. And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's a lot. You see, we're not to just pass along a few basic truths. We are to teach them, develop them, pass along all that Jesus has taught us, all that's contained in the Word, which, of course, Jesus taught them the, the Word of God, the Old Testament. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, you know, where he goes back to the Law of Moses and he says, you've heard it said this about those laws but I, or this behavior, and I say to you this, you know, where... Uh, to hate someone, to hold them in contempt, is to violate the commandment against murder. We say, well, I haven't murdered, and is it as bad to hate someone as it is to murder them? Well, no, of course not. But you have violated the commandment, which implies not that you just you don't murder them, but you do everything you can for them. Or Jesus also talks about the seventh commandment that lust is a violation of the law against adultery. Is it as bad? No, but nevertheless, it is a violation of the law of God, if only in our hearts. And Jesus strips away any pretense of righteousness that we might have when he shows us that God is concerned not just with outward behavior, but he's concerned with our hearts. And we violate those commands, certainly in our hearts, if we haven't in our outward behavior. So Jesus has taught them, you know, it's not that you can say, well, we're just concerned with what Jesus says, you know, the words in red in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Jesus says, teaching them all I've taught you, that includes the whole Old Testament. It includes the perspective of the Old Testament that ultimately it all points to Jesus, and it's all about Jesus. And the Old Testament ultimately is fulfilled in Christ. You see, you may preach an Old Testament text, but these days you better not be preaching an Old Testament sermon. Because Christ has come. You can teach an Old Testament text in a lesson, but you don't want to teach an Old Testament sermon because Christ has come. And ultimately, you want to show how that passage in its context is pointing to Jesus and it finds its fulfillment and completion in Jesus. Now that's the task that Jesus gives to his disciples, to his church. Therefore, he has given that task to us. So we have here this declaration of Jesus' authority give this commission and the authority we have under him to carry it out, uh, the command that Jesus gave to go make disciples, baptizing them and instructing them. But then the third part of the commission is a promise, and that's in verse 20. He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is physically leaving, but he is still with his church. He's going to, in Acts chapter 2, give the Holy Spirit to the church, which is the presence of God with us in the third person of the Trinity, in a way that the presence of God was not with us when the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, was here in the flesh. Jesus could not be in his humanity with his disciples at all, all places all the time. In his human body, he was limited to one place at a time, just like we are. Not so with the Holy Spirit, who is not incarnate. 
who uh, did not take to himself a human body and its limitations, but is able to, to live in the heart of every believer. Remember, Paul says, you, singular, are the temple of the, of the Spirit, and also to live amongst us as a church, because he also says in another place, you, plural, are the temple of God. You, the church, are where God dwells here on earth now, in the midst of you, as well as within each one of you. And so Jesus says, I am with you. Remember, he, he reiterates uh, that word to Paul there in Corinth in verse 9. He said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And Jesus made that promise, and he keeps that promise. He was there with Paul. He's been with his church ever since, and he is with us as well, of course, at all times. In all circumstances, but here, especially with a view in mind to our carrying out the Great Commission. You may have a friend or neighbor, you think, boy, I'd really like to talk to them about Jesus, but I'm kind of afraid what will happen. Remember, Jesus is with you. You're not alone. He is there with you. How long? Well, he says, I'm with you always. Literally, I'm with you through the whole of every day, all of each day, all of the day. So, yes, the end horizon is view. Jesus will be with us until he comes back. But he's also saying, I'm with you each day. I'm with you through every day. This is a wonderful thing. I am with you always, not just for as long as the church is here carrying out its work, but with you, believer, every day, dawn to dusk, every day, Jesus is with us to the end of the age. He will be, of course, he will be with us after the end of the age. But his point here is he's with us in the carrying out of the Great Commission. There will never be a ch- time uh, that the church is without Christ. The church doesn't have the authority and the, the presence of Christ in the carrying out of the Great Commission until that time when he comes back and the Great Commission will no longer be necessary. Because as I say, when we are with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth, one thing we won't be doing is missions, is evangelism. We'll still be worshiping. But we will no longer be carrying out the Great Commission. That task will have been completed. Well, you know, Matthew's gospel formally draws to an end here, and our study of it ends here. There is a sense in which Matthew's gospel does not end here. You know, as we've gone through it, there'll be a block of, of, of information about what happened in Jesus' ministry, what he did, what he carried out, the miracles and so forth, the healing. And then there'll be a block of teaching. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, or the Olivet Discourse, or something like that. Well, here we've had another section of things that happened in Jesus' life, the history of his, his uh, arrest and the, his, his trial, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But no extended block of teaching. Pattern breaks here, because Jesus does something different. He says to his disciples, instead of teaching them for a chapter or two or three, He says, now I'm sending you out, sending you out to do what I have been doing among you. You know, as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. And the teaching now is yours. See that being fulfilled in the book of Acts. It continues in Acts, continues through the New Testament. It has continued through church history to the present day. And so by ending, as he does, with the Great Commission, Matthew, in a sense, includes you and me in his gospel. We are part of this ongoing story of the spread, the advance of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ here in the world. 
the book of Matthew may come to an end. Therefore, our study of Matthew must come to an end. But the reality is this. The story of Matthew continues, and it includes you, and it includes me. Placing upon us this great commission that Jesus has given to us, his church, carry it out until he calls us home or until he comes back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. Thank you for uh, the faithful record that it is of the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Christ. And Father, hear it as it ends with these words. We pray that you would help us to have that outward focus, that outward look that we need, that outward mindset. But Father, we also pray for hearts to be obedient. Give us a sense of the importance and urgency of this commission. But Father, never let us lose sight of the fact that our Lord Jesus is with us. And he has given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his word, his truth. And Father, we pray as believers, we pray as a church, that as we carry out this commission, you would let us see and rejoice in the fruit of our labors. And all to your glory. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.